Do you have an Echo at home? Do you have like an Amazon Echo? No. Watch this. Alexa, play the Better the Bookshelf podcast. Here's Better the Bookshelf from TuneIn. Episode 25, Salvage the Bones. Better the Bookshelf podcast. One hour, eight minutes. Nice. It even shows our little logo. Check that out. Look at that. Pretty nifty. Pretty nifty indeed. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode 27. In this episode, we are talking about Philip Roth's Every Man. I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cult, book something or other, episode 27. Another landmark episode, and I, I guess technically every episode's a landmark episode because it's the most that we've done up until this point, so True. it's mostly just semantic in nature, but I think this is going to be an interesting episode, and not just because I got to pick back-to-back books, and I'm on the... Uh, I'm on the second half of my double header now. Yeah. Uh but I just think uh I, I, I think this is a an interesting book for us to talk about this week, mostly because of its sort of straightforward nature. Yeah. Uh so I think we get a lot of the just sort of elements of how we feel and how it sort of connects story wise. But anyway, yes, gonna be a fun episode. Yep. Traditional episode. We're gonna tell you a little bit about Philip Roth. Not too much, because again, this is our second time uh getting a Roth yeah. book on here. Uh, then we'll give you a brief summary of the story. Then we'll just get into it. I know we don't have a lot of questions for each other this week, but we do have stuff to think about and chew over and talk about. So that'll be fun. And then, of course, at the end, our patented three-tier, four if we're giving it away, five if it's going to have a quintuple bypass and then it's going to recover at home with a nurse and have an affair, <laughs> six if it's not going to be six. There's probably not going to be five, probably not going to be four. We're probably just going to be the three. Yeah, probably. Uh, but yes, our patented... Uh, trademarked rating system, and then we'll tell you what we've got uh, coming up on the next episode. So Yes, and if you haven't read this book, you should go read it. It's especially uh, an easy read because it's short, giant print, and uh, and flows very quickly, I think, more than any other book that we've ever read. Right. I probably read this in like, I don't know, probably two and a half hours, three, yeah. t- three tops. Yeah, right about that. Right about that two, two and a half hour mark. I mean, it's really a, a novella. Yeah. As I, I feel like um, novella sounds more more like interesting. Like it's something like maybe yeah. it's because I'm thinking of like serial novellas, like on Telemundo. Sure. Maybe that's the association that gets put in my brain. It's like, oh, it's a novella. We'll get in here. And I'm like, oh, it's just. It's, <laughs> yeah. OK. There's not there's not like uh, twin sisters and comas and then you know yeah. all this other crazy stuff that's going on. True. When was the last time you watched or ever uh, any sort of daytime uh Daytime programming of that ilk. Man, we're we're going off the rails early. We're going really off the rails early um, in this episode. I apologize. No, I, I you know, I, I can't think of the last time, but I remember when I was a kid, my mom used to watch uh I think uh The Young and the Restless. Okay. Um like she was a stay at home mom at that point, and uh I I don't I remember her watching it, but I remember one specific episode. Um, there was like a, a a dream that one of the characters had about like getting like murdered by like insects or like ants. So they had like ants crawling all over them. And, I, you know, being a kid, I probably like hyped this way up. But anyway, I had a dream 
about that. I just that like I was in a box like full of ants, like Fear Factor style, getting covered and eaten alive. Okay, and uh, that was a fear of mine, like as a child for years that I was just gonna wake up covered in ants because of uh, because of one of those shows. Wow, sorry, didn't mean to like dig that one up for you to just sort of <laughs> rehash here uh, with our audience. But uh, I feel like I feel like we're gonna get into some deep stuff today anyway. So I, I figured why why well, not just, just go ahead and dredge it up, yeah. just dredge everything up. But uh, yeah, so tell us a little bit about Philip Roth. Yeah, so uh, and his return to the podcast. Yes, if you want a little bit more of an in depth bio, you should go check out um, our episode on Plot Against America, um, another really good book. Uh, but Philip Roth was uh, from from New Jersey, uh, died in uh, Manhattan in uh, 2018, shortly after we read Plot Against America, or actually just before. Yeah, um, which was uh, which was kind of kind of creepy. Uh, but he is he was a prolific writer, um, highly awarded, actually one of the most awarded uh, writers of his generation. Uh, he got two National Book Awards. Uh, National Book Critics Circle Award, uh, three times the Penn Faulkner Award, uh, and he won a Pulitzer for American Pastoral. So uh, definitely a critically acclaimed and uh, and prolific writer. And uh, yeah, I think we'll I think we'll leave it at that. I think this book has a lot of elements of of him, especially around like religion. Well, yeah, stuff. that was one of the things I was going to bring up too. And you know, with Plot Against America, where we do kind of get a sort of reimagined uh, version of his family. Yep. Uh, and in this, it seems as though there's a lot of elements that kind of directly correlate to, to his own life. And, you know, I had at least seen that there's a lot of that element within his writing that he does incorporate a lot of, of his own sort of family elements or his own sort of thoughts and ideas into his characters. And even so much as narrates one kind of from the the viewpoint of himself. So, yeah. Uh, so you have a summary for us. I, I have assume. a, I have a quick and dirty summary. Yeah. I didn't have to go to TV tropes this time. This is like a guy, a guy dies, a guy dies. And we look at some stuff about him. No. Uh, I mean, that's actually kind of, all right, well, I'll, we'll just move on. We don't need a summary now, I guess. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you no. worked on a summary. Beginning at his own funeral, every man is the story of a man looking back on the choices he made and events throughout his life. It's essentially the gist of it. That is the gist of it. So this is the... I feel like this is something that I've at least acknowledged or, or heard of in other stories or books or, or TV or movies. The whole... You start with the at the funeral or the death of the character, and then we kind of go back and, and yeah. reminisce on pieces of his life. Mm-hmm. But this is the first thing... I, I, I think this is the first actual book that I've read in full that had that element of storytelling to it. And... You know, how did that exactly work for you? Because, you know, in some ways we go in and it's obviously disarming. We know the the sort of course that this is on. And we're even within the first scene at his funeral, we're sort of given all of these elements of his his relationship problems yep. uh, with his kids um, and just kind of his relationship with his brother and everything um, that obviously we get more later. But how does that, I don't know, style of storytelling work for you? Because for me, it's. I, I'm very much like I I like the non-linear like non-linear storytelling techniques and and even within this book you know it's not even just we get the funeral and then we jump back and we get a linear yeah, progression right yeah. we get things that sort of jump around back and forth between times and and I enjoy that enough but um, 
I don't know. I think for this particular story, starting off with the funeral, I, I can imagine in some scenarios where it wouldn't work, but I think that that was kind of a necessary starting point for us, I guess, in sort of setting up this character, this our unnamed everyman protagonist. But like, yeah. what what did you think about that? Uh, I, I I agree wholeheartedly that it was necessary because I think you have to set the the groundwork that everything that we're that we're going to be reading is the context of it is that this guy is dead now and that he's been approaching death and dealing with, you know, uh, aging and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I think the context is, is vital. Um, the one thing that, that when you get the scene at the beginning of the funeral, um, it took me a while to sort of like realize that we were then going to just follow his earlier memories because you, you kind of never know in situations like that, like, okay, is is he important or is this really about like Howie and, and the fallout after after uh, his brother's death or, yeah. you know, his kids or whatever. So I kind of kept waiting for the first I don't know, few dozen pages or so to see if we were going to like segue into, you know, their well, perspective like at all. Time, yeah. A little bit longer before maybe dipping back. Exactly. So I think um Having that early and being so focused on the family members set up an expectation in me that we were going to be interested in them a bit more than as far as like a narrative is concerned than the protagonist. Can we just call him every man, even though he is not every man? But I think there's I think that at least sort of the central not themes, but sort of the central things at play here. I, I, it goes really well with the title and, and, you know, it goes really back to the naming of the, the jewelry store, you know, where we kind of get the, the namesake of the title from where it's, you're trying to appeal to a, yeah. a mass or a broad group of people that would be sort of turned off otherwise by if it was a specific, like if our, if our protagonist had a specific name, uh, you know, or, or a specific, you know, if it was a specific person, you could see in some ways that it would be a little bit harder maybe to identify with, with, with circumstances or things like that. Me personally, probably not, but, um, you know, I feel like so much of this book is kind of dealing with the, the sort of core issues of, of mortality and how it affects your life and how it affects, you know, the people around you and just sort of your own personal identity as to kind of like who you are and like what path you're going to go down and what things you sort of, value and and just sort of the sort of the the choices you make and how they reflect upon your your later years in life and and so having yeah. sort of every man be every man and not you know Joe Schmo or some specific person it it kind of lays that layer of you know we this is not a this is not a unique story there's not you know anything special about him or about the elements and even you know early on in the book when it's talking about the funeral and the yeah. 500 or so that might be happening that same weekend up and yep. down you know New Jersey that yep. the own little instances are, are they make it unique but you know this story this person is not unique in any way yeah and um so I to stay with the kind of the title thing, I actually listened to an interview that Philip Roth did on uh, NPR's Fresh Air back in 2008, and uh, he got the title actually from a uh, morality play from uh, 1485 yeah. or thereabouts. And uh, what I thought was was so interesting, you know, and morality plays, you know, were were always stories to convey a moral, and and in this uh, this specific one. 
it was it was like basically you know work hard um, and you know do good go to heaven um, you know be a Christian or be a Christian or go to hell is sort of the the moral of this and uh, Very re- well obviously religious overtones that. This book doesn't have. Yeah. And then, <laughs> or anything by Roth obviously doesn't have. The one line that he quoted uh, from there um, that stuck with him, obviously, because he brought it up in the interview. And then, you know, I thought, well, how appropriate to sort of kickstart this was, uh, oh, death, thou comes when I had the least in mind. And, you know, that's sort of like how the, the book goes and, and how he gets to his to his end. But, um, you know, I, I think... He, this character, this every man did have, you know, the end or multiple ends from, you know, people around him and stuff in mind. And, you know, I think it's, it's something that everybody thinks about to some degree, uh, especially as you, as you age. Um, so. Yes. As we slowly become ripened and overly ripened, uh, men approaching near middle age. Well, you, you know what's you know what's weird is is I've I've given like I've given it a lot of thought lately. Um, you know, my my grandmother passed away uh last August and uh and you know, she was 84. Um Yeah. So 85, 84. Um and uh but still it was it was sort of it kind of kicked off in me like this sort of rumination of like, well, you know, shit, like I could go to bed one night too and not wake up for sure, you know, really no good reason other than you know it's just my heart decided to give out or or whatever it is, and so I find myself um thinking about that that stuff a lot more often, you know, my wife and I have talked about like you know we should probably write like talk about funeral arrangements and like, you know, maybe think about, you know, writing a will since we have stuff now and like, you know, yeah. those, those things might have to be sorted out. And it's kind of, it's kind of a weird thing because, you know, in your, in your twenties and certainly in your teens, like none of that is at the forefront of your mind really other than like, you know, maybe a grandparent dies or an uncle and aunt or, you know, something like that. It's just not something that you're really faced with or you have to confront kind of head on. Yeah. Have have you thought about that at, at all? Like more as 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 you get older? Yeah, I mean definitely, and and a lot of it too. You know, you're you're married and you have been for a little bit now, and you know you kind of have been more so in this mindset. I've recently, well, not recently, but you know, I've been within the last year of have kind of gotten into a relationship, and you know, it's allowed me more time to sort of think about that, <laughs> think about yeah. the future, think about those that sort of. Uh, those sort of little interconnected elements. And, you know, in doing this podcast, um, I think the Hesse book was another one where it was, you know, although that book had a lot of kind of crazy narrative going on compared to this one, a lot of that book was sort of, you know, things that are happening, ideas, thoughts, feelings, and sort of the, how they relate to you and your own kind of like state and experience. And that's a lot of what this book was too. The narrative in here is nothing. You're not going to get anything in here from a story perspective that's unique that you haven't heard, you know, times over from anywhere else, you know, a guy yep. flawed that commits these mistakes, whether it's adultery or whether it's sort of a distance or he doesn't pursue his passions yep. maybe as, as much as he should. And then, you know, you kind of get to the old age and health sort of declines and you look back in reflection of all these things and, you know, you have your regrets and you have your other things that that's not a, a unique story. And, and I feel like that's uh more common than probably anything 
otherwise that you would experience in a story like this. So it, it is interesting to kind of get into a book or to have one of these little books that sort of shake up our our narrative change. Whereas last last episode, you know, not a whole lot personal relating to be done there. Yeah. Inter- interesting sort of things to take in and digest for sure. But this was a book that you're not going to read to be blown away by um, the narrative or the story. And the writing is really good. I mean, obviously, yeah. like Roth, you know, he doesn't need me to compliment him. He's got plenty of sure. laurels to rest on. But the writing is is very well done. The story is very well told. But this book is written. And this book, you know, I guess for me at least, I chose it to 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 get in that same vein, to get to the, the fact that, you know, yeah, as you're getting older, and, and I say older as, you know, I'm 31. <laughs> yeah. So older to some people for sure, but, uh, you know, still relatively young in the grand scheme of things, you know, you do start transitioning your mindset into, into these sort of, you know, I feel like we're kind of in that age where we have these like really weird dichotomies within us, right? As far as the things that, that get our attention and the things that get, you know, kind of our mental energy and the things that we sure, think about, like sure. it's still, you're kind of caught in this struggle of like your younger self and your future self and, where your priorities go on sort of a daily basis and where your thoughts sort of go all over. You know, you, I, I find myself struggling all the time at like adapting and adjusting to, to new avenues in my life or to sort of new um, thoughts or at least sort of new sort of trajectories. Like, okay, this is what I should be doing and this is what I should be doing, but kind of my life up until this point has been a mixture of this. And, yeah. and finding that sort of crossover is... I don't know. It's it it's interesting to sort of indulge and think more on the on the older side and and to allow yourself to kind of get into that 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 mindset of like okay, well, you know, I don't like I don't you know like and long for the idea to think about my own death, but it's a reality and it's it's something that you know is is approaching probably faster than I'd want it to and uh, at probably not the most you know op you know opportune time for yourself so. Yeah, I mean, I, this book did that for me, and, and just in general, kind of the the stage of life that I'm at. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I got to thinking about you know my my grandmother. Obviously, I'm gonna talk about her a lot this episode because I really I thought about um, like her last few years, um, and one of the things that that jumped out to me was especially like when he was in the retirement home or yeah. about to go and he was trying to figure out how to maybe like move in with Nancy and stuff before um before Phoebe had her stroke yeah. and uh and all of that kind of stuff and you know so my grandfather died in in 2011 my grandmother lived alone for the rest of her life right. um all the way up you know through 2018 and you know she she and I talked uh almost every day uh especially the last few years sometimes multiple times a day and, you know, I was typically over there at least, you know, every other weekend, sometimes every weekend, you know, if there was stuff going on or whatever. Um, and, you know, it it really kind of dawned on me how, like, lonely she must have been, um, you know, being there, you know, just going through. Uh, she, she was a voracious reader of romance novels. Yeah. Uh, you know, so she she went through those. She watched a lot of TV and that sort of stuff. But. You know, I, I found myself wondering, you know, what what were sort of the fantasies that that she wished, you know, would sort of have come to fruition? Was it, 
you know, that she wished she could have moved in here and, and, you know, been a part of, you know, my daily life, I'd probably on, on some level, she, she had those, those sort of thoughts. And that, I mean, that's something my wife and I were talking about the last few months, um, you know, when she said she was just too tired to like, you know, take care of the house anymore. We we're trying to kind of figure out, you know, what, what to do there. But, um, you know, that, that kind of hit me hard because, you know, you, you never know what somebody else is like thinking or, or feeling at any point in time. And, and especially like my grandmother had the, the, the sort of stiff upper lip, like German mentality around, you know, not showing emotion. Now, my grandmother, you know, would, would tell me she loved me and, you know, was, was very much doting in, in that regard. But, uh, she would never really talk about her like own, you know, feelings about things, you know, she would say, you know, it was really nice having you over this, this weekend. Um, you know, it just, it made, made my week or whatever, you know, yeah. she'd say things like that, but she would never just come out and say like, you know, I'm lonely. I wish, you know, people were here more often. And so that, that got me thinking like, man, what are, what are the things that, you know, she thought that, you know, she never said to me. Sure. Um, and that was, that was kind of weird. And then I got to thinking about my dad, my dad turned 70 this year. And, uh, and I always, I always picture my parents. I don't know about you, but I always kind of picture them as, you know, I, as, as I did when I was a kid, you know, they're just sort of just a few years, well, I say a few years. My, my parents are obviously 40 years older than I am. Yeah. Uh, but, or my dad is anyway. Um, you know, so I just sort of always kind of picture them sort of us in lockstep and I'm in good health. And, you know, I just sort of expect that they're going to carry on into perpetuity. But reality is like he's pretty far along in his life. And, sure. you know, just it, that also started to dawn on me. Do you ever, do you ever think about your, your parents all the time like that all the time? Yeah. I mean, you know, you kind of have these. I have these these like moments in your in your head through experience when I guess you're a kid and you're kind of more impressionable to to sort of moments that that happen in your life and yeah. before you kind of just get worn down by the minutia of, yeah. of adulthood uh, where everything that's you know possibly interesting is you know oh, this is a formative memory <laughs> in your mind and I'll remember this forever so yeah you do have those I have those like mental pictures of my parents and uh, yeah you know as you get older you kind of for me, I think even more so than kind of that, the thought of your own mortality or the sort of the thought, because I guess I have the benefit of still being again, relatively young and in good health. So it's not something that's immediately in my periphery. It's something you think about and obviously uh, you spend some mental energy on that. But yeah, I mean, when it comes to thinking about parents, I mean, the whole section where he's at his father's funeral and it kind of like dawns on him as they're burying him that it's like, this is the, you know, this is the last, impression of, or or this is kind of the last remnant of sort of a time in my life that I can't ever get back. Yeah. That like, you know, a simpler time, all these other things. And that, yeah, I mean, as far as this book is concerned, like that, I think hit me more than anything else. Just the idea, you know, thankfully both my my parents are still alive and in relatively good shape. Um, (laughs) My dad less so, but um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it is, it's, it's, it is a little bit scary and you don't really know exactly how to deal with that because, you know, I have siblings. Um, so I have people that have those shared experiences with me, but you know, once your parents are gone, then it's kind of just, it's, you've, you've 
transitioned almost fully. It's that, that part of your life. You're always, you know, at least right now, like I'm an adult, you know, I go and I, you know, you live your adult life, but you're always still a kid to somebody, right? You're like yeah, somebody's yeah. kid. Yep. So you could be however old you could be 15, 20, 30, 40, whatever. You're somebody's kid. So you yeah. still kind of have this sort of, um, this thing in front of you all the time. And it's, you know, it's your parents and your parents' lives and kind of your, whatever their, their struggles on or whatever the things that are going on with them that always kind of precede your own sort of situation in that, in that same way. Yep. And then, you know, just the day where you wake up and you no longer are somebody's kid, um, at at least in an active sense of them still being alive, you no longer have that. Then, yeah, then it just, that idea to me is it's pretty scary. It's pretty, it's pretty scary because then now, you know, depending on your own station in life, you are that role. You're, you're sort right. of there to be, you, you know, someone else's memories really, or, or someone else's sort of point for, uh, for recognizing, you know, times and, and, and memories that, that you were involved in. Yeah. And, you know, I, th- I think when you, when you lose parents too, um, or you become, you know, the last surviving member of your family, like you're then, you know, the only person that has, you know, any, any memories anymore of, of the experiences that you went through. Yeah. And like one thing, uh, you know, my mom had, had said to me a few weeks ago was like, you know, uh, something along the lines of like, you know, your, your uncle now is like the only person who knew me, like, you know, up until you were born, like really knew, like, right. you know, what our lives w- were, were like growing up, you know, with, with our parents and stuff. Um, because, you know, everybody else has fragments of, of your life, friends and things, but, you know, nobody else besides your family really has like the full picture. And, you know, even then a very like specific, um, perspective and almost the, the more objective perspective of like your childhood is gone when your parents are gone. Cause how many times do you, do you have a conversation with your parents and you're like, yeah, I remember this, this like thing that we did. And yeah. I remember it this way. And you're like, just so wrong. Yeah. They're like, you're a dumb no. kid. Yeah. yeah. They're like, no, 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 this, this didn't happen. And, or, you know, it was, it was this place or this person. Yeah. I mean, just even, I'm just even perspective. Like it, it couldn't even be something that you're, you're misremembering or wrong about, but just sort of a different perspective. Like I still, you know, whenever I talk to, whenever I talk to my mom or, you know, we're just hanging out and talking about if something kind of random gets brought up, if we're at a family gathering or something like she, she, myself and my sister mostly, you know, we'll, we'll typically shoot the shit about old stuff. It's just, yeah. you know, still to this day, even events that I thought like I kind of knew inside and out, like I still get constant, like different perspectives on it. And just that idea that, you know, you're not going to be able to sort of have that, that like overarching figure that has kind of seen your development or that has kind of seen everything that you've experienced or that you've gone through or felt or they've experienced with you. It's yeah. I mean, it's, it's strange because that's just a whole perspective on your life that now, you know, you will find a point where you just move on and will no longer be able to kind of draw on that at least for, contemporary things i mean yeah. like if you've talked with them you can have that on sort of past events and do your best but yeah so i mean that's that was the one thing in this book too for me the um with his with his mom having the stroke while he was kind of away and not getting to do that yeah. and his dad passing away at the funeral that was that was probably the harder part in this book for me to sort of like reconcile kind of with my own thoughts and feelings 
Yeah, for sure. I I think that uh, I think it was interesting how how the whole entire book, um, and and honestly, a, a little bit humorous in some way. Um, but the whole book was really plotted by the like medical history of pretty much of every man. And like, you know, if you spend any time around, uh, around elderly people, family or, or otherwise, uh, you know, it is, it is kind of a joke that, you know, it's, they, they exchange stories about their, you know, operations and, in and, and out whatever. of hospitals are, are there, those are the kind of like demarcation points that, you know, yeah. before this, after this. Yeah. I mean, as you get older, that's the tends to be kind of the life altering events for you. And I thought it was, it was a, a brilliant way for a third person narrator talking about this, this protagonist to use that like similar, um, like language or approach to, to talking about, you know, somebody's life as though, you know, the protagonist were, were talking about himself or, you know, somebody, somebody close to him, uh, you know, might be sort of recounting, uh, that medical history did did you catch on to that uh, fairly early on that yeah. that was going to be like a that's kind of the you know we start well you know we hop in and we start with the hernia immediately and it's like okay well this right. is kind of a weird like starting point obviously we get a little bit of background but to be the first kind of major story element starting point yeah and then as we go on from there it's the the various heart surgeries or burst appendix and yeah it's it's you know, it's it's funny in a story that is essentially, you know, the biggest element of it is kind of facing uh, facing down your own mortality and how that sort of affects the not only your behavior, um, but just sort of your your outlook on life and and the choices you make and having those those separate incidences of uh, of kind of facing your your mortality sort of build up. You know, as you're getting older, because you know hernia surgery you know, not really life-threatening at all. No. At all. But, you know, in the frame of him being a younger boy and not really having this, it seems like it could be very fearful. And then first appendix, considerably more serious, but still ultimately not as life-threatening. Right. And we get into heart surgeries. We get into these sorts of things that are, they're routine in the sense that they're commonly performed, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, diminish the risk involved along side of them. And so, yeah, we kind of get this sort of ramping up alongside the sort of points that we see uh, marking different stages in his life. You know, later on in the book for when he's thinking about, you know, kind of his last surgery and he sort of reflects on the the women in his life that have been there in each of the phases of his life, you know, the recovery, yeah. whether he had Cecilia with his appendix or Phoebe kind of with the heart surgery yeah. or, you know, having, he you know, he was even looking into oh, I wonder if Maureen is still, you know, a nurse. Yeah. I'd like to have her come and, like, be my nurse again and things like that. So, yeah, I think that's another weird kind of correlation. And, and I guess for his first one, it's his mom. Yep. Um, but just kind of the the different women that are associated with each of those periods in his life wherever he has these sort of medical procedures. I'm going to go off the rails here. But okay. But you made me think of Matreet, uh, his... Was that how you say your name? Marit. Marit. Whatever it was. Uh, The Dane. Yeah, the Dane. Um, I was caught off guard by the, like, explicit nature in which he described their sexual relationship. Um, I was not, like, mentally prepared going through the book the way that we had to have that, like, amount of detail about, uh, about their relationship and, like, 
did did that add anything for you or uh... no nah, it did feel a little out of place but i you know from what i've ascertained based on interviews or looking at Roth and some of his other works that that's not something that he necessarily like spares the details on. That yeah. There's a lot of like explicit sexuality within, you know, the confines of his books, which obviously we didn't get really in plot against America. No, uh, it wasn't much opportunity. But that, for yeah. That, that might've just been, uh, constrained by the subject matter. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a little bit, it was a little bit surprising. I, I was, uh, I was sitting there on the couch reading and my, my wife was, I don't know, looking at Facebook or something. And uh, I was, I was reading that, that part and I was like, the fuck is going on right now? Yeah. And uh, you know, so on, on one hand it made me as a reader uncomfortable because I wasn't anticipating it. Like there wasn't really, we didn't get any exposure to his like sexual frame of mind up until the point right. where they're on that photo shoot and they, they start their affair. And then it was just like full bore. Yeah. But uh, like, now, in, in retrospect, you know, it did kind of, um, I think, humanize him, you know, as as a character uh, in, in a way, because, you know, I, I think we don't often think about like other people's, you know, sexual escapades. Um, sure. You know, generally speaking, at least as Americans, like that is something we usually keep to ourselves. Well, and yeah, so once, when you're once, you reach, with it, once you reach adulthood, yeah. it's, it's less important what other people are doing to you than, you know, when you're a teen or early yeah. 20. Or. So I was I was caught off guard by that. I, I mean, I, I certainly, I don't know. I, I don't know that I have like an opinion of it, but I just found it was didn't really add a whole lot to me other than just to say like, hey, this guy had sex too. And like, yeah, well, I was reading somewhere just in, and cause I always like to go out and read about, you know, books and opinions and things like yeah. that whenever we read a book. And it was kind of an interesting point that was made where you have this sort of uptick in, in, in sexuality or in, I guess like in that sort of desire for sexuality when you get older and, and yeah. in like later aged and later middle aged men, because it's kind of this biological imperative that, that pops up to fight against that sort of impending sense of your own sort of the, the how close your own mortality is. It's sort of this biological where it's like, well, if my mortality is this close, how am I such a, you know, you have this need for virility yeah. and yeah. like masculinity to sort of reclaim this essentially dirty old man syndrome. I mean, it makes movies like dirty or dirty grandpa, old dirty. Gra- I, I never, I never saw, saw that. that. Yeah, dirty I grandpa. I know it makes, of it. Makes those movies, those type of that, that sort of trope of the, the old man, you know, when it's the the joggers and he's like hitting on the joggers and yeah, things like that. Yeah. It's kind of like it's like, uh, you know, as a I feel like as a as a society, we're conditioned to be like, oh, like the dirty old man. Yeah. You know, kind of like weird dynamic. But it makes sense like that when you look at it through the frame of the, of, of that lens of, of the kind of biological imperative to prove that you're still sort of capable of of life that you're capable of, you know, basic, you know, biological imperative. Yeah. It's, uh, it was, it's definitely a subject that I didn't feel like I was going to encounter and, uh, you know, but it's well, sure. Just, Cause it, when you think about old men doing it, then you have to think about old man dong and that's just, oh, Jesus. No, now I'm just putting that, that seat in your mind. Oh, yeah. God. No one wants to think about that. No, no, nobody wants to think about that. Yeah. Um, so, well, we get what, some, and and we get a little bit of interesting too. Because did you feel at all whenever we kind of got towards the end, 
and it was like him and Millicent. Did you think there was going to, because it was kind of like leading up and obviously we don't get any sort of like romantic angle between those two because of Millicent's attachment. Was that the back lady? Yes. Okay. Because of her like attachments to her husband and her chronic pain and things like that. But as we're kind of like introduced to the scenario, was that crossing your mind that it's like, oh God, we're going to get like retirement home, like Um, like sexual escapades. It did. But I, I honestly, I thought it was more interesting that like that didn't even seem to cross his mind. Yeah. Um. And you know, I th- I think it kind of goes back to like it wasn't necessarily for him uh, about you know just the act of sex, but reclaiming right. some sort of youth in that. Like yeah, like uh, talking to the jogger on the boardwalk. Sure. Um. You know. So yeah, I I did have a moment where I was like. Oh this, man, we're getting this is about to turn to a love story. Retirement village, uh, yeah, booty call sesh, but and yeah, no, and and there's some interesting stuff that's said in there too. I guess kind of with with aging, where it's you know it's the long and short of it was attractiveness is less important than just sort of your your character or sort of your personality things like that because yeah whenever you reach a certain age like your attractiveness from conventional standards fades to a good degree anyway so yeah. I thought that's a good point. That's a good point. It is. You know, uh one thing that was that was touched on but not quite as heavily as I think that you know, I, I think about it anyway is just sort of the idea of regret. Like every man's regret was around, you know, his his family and stuff, but setting that aside, like if you look at like his painting, like that was that was something that that he wanted to pursue. But he didn't seem to me, and and maybe this was just my interpretation of it, that like he wasn't he wasn't overly disappointed by sort of not having, you know, like spent his retirement really doing what he wanted to do or finding success in that arena. And I think, you know, so many times people do try to retire into something like that and try to sure, to follow you know, a passion that maybe yeah, they I'm going to write a book for. Yeah. Yeah. And, and something like that is, have you ever given any thought to like what you want to do? Like what, it, what is one thing that if, if you were to have to like retire today that you would want to do with the rest of your rest of your life, move hundreds of miles away from the next like nearest living soul, other than obviously like my, you know, Significant other. So you'd go to like Alaska, Canada? Uh, Southern Alaska would be cool, actually. But no, I mean, I would love to retire and just go like live on some homesteaded acreage and just live incredibly simply and just almost like isolated outside of obviously, you know, communication with family and things like that. I have no desire, especially, you know, when I get old or, or get older, I have no desire to sort of indulge in i guess the trajectory that our society has kind of like been set on and i'm not trying yeah. to make like political commentary or anything like that but like i guess the features of sort of our interconnected and and overly communicative and all this sort of world that has no appeal to me at all now yeah and i know when i'm an old cranky you know uh belligerent asshole i'm just gonna want to retreat even further away from it so uh as far as like creatively um, I mean, I like, you know, this podcast, if anything else is, has reignited a sort of like desire to, to, to read more fiction. And I hope that that sort of continues, uh, further along and, and just sort of ignites that spark for me for the rest of my life. So of course, you know, I'd love to just kind of read and live like incredibly simply. 
Yeah, I think I think it's interesting. My dad retired a few years ago, and one of the things that that he said to me, kind of jokingly, but really dead serious, was you know he he had a, he had a great career in in business, and you know they my parents lived very comfortably and did all the right things to like get to where they are. Yeah, uh, you know, but one day we were just kind of having this discussion um, because he kind of got forced out of his out of his job there at the end. And, uh, he had, he would call me periodically and just, you know, kind of work through, you know, how do I sort of define myself as a person now that I'm not, you know, this, your job doesn't, define yeah, you. exactly. And, uh, so one of the things he said to me was, I, I never figured out what I wanted to do when I, when I grew up. Yeah. And that just like, that broke my heart. And I still think about it all the time when I see him because, you know, he, he's, he spends time with my mom and, you know, takes care of the house and he, you know, enjoys gardening and, and, uh, and that sort of stuff, but he doesn't really have like a passion. And that's, I think my biggest fear. I don't really, I, I think that, I think that, you know, we've talked about this, even just, you know, you and me and like conversations with our friends or whatnot. Mm -hmm. I don't think this situation is, uh, especially unique to our generation. I just think that the communication, that's had around the idea of having a passion and kind of being at a loss for what your own perceived purpose in life is. I think that the communication amongst like our age group of people is a lot higher than say our parents. Cause I don't yeah. think that, I don't think that we're unique in sort of feeling um, a detachment from the idea of finding the things we're passionate about and pursuing those to like the fullest extent of our own happiness. Right. Yeah. Because obviously there are limitations to that for most people, you know, for most people, the pragmatic approach of, I have to provide for myself and my family and, you know, save to ensure that I have a future, uh, obviously takes precedent over trying to, sure. trying to, you know, unequivocally pursue your, your passions. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that is a thing that, is not unique, but I feel like our generation, we talk about it or, or we, we, we express it in a lot more open ways than perhaps, you know, our parents' generation. Yeah. I feel like our parents' generation, they thought about it and they felt it, but then they didn't really like want to speak up about it because perhaps there's a, you know, perceived sort of weakness or perceived sort of social status with that. I, I don't know. Like the people, you know, perhaps, 20, 30 years ago, the people that kind of like would quit their job and pursue sort of artistic or other means were just like dirty hippies or so. I don't, yeah, you know, yeah. you're still kind of in that aftermath of, of kind of the counterculture movement in the sixties and early seventies where I, I feel like you would be kind of associated with that and that would have whatever other negative connotations alongside of it, you know, like, yeah. Oh, you just want to go like move to a, a commune and, and grow vegetables and, and knit or something. Right, yeah. Like, well, I'm not, that's not exactly what pursuing your passion is. It's, yeah. it's more so trying to devote time to your own, you know, emotional and mental well being through things that excite you until you can find something that excites you so much that you genuinely, you know, you genuinely find yourself rejuvenated by the effort and the time and energy you put into it rather than sort of exhausted. You know, I, I think it's it's interesting you bring that up because you know the 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 place that we are in our workforce 
is really interesting because we have so many different generations of, of people, you know, working in like business, for instance. Yeah. And, you know, I, I work for, for a financial company. So, you know, we have, you know, certain culture and stuff. And um, it's much different, like, you know, managing to millennials who are much more idealistic. They want to care about... Um, I, I am a millennial. I throw myself in that, but you want to care. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely on the, on the upper end, but uh, millennials generally want to care about what they do and Mm -hmm. want to like, you know, make an impact on, on things. But one thing that, that I, I see that's, that's really interesting is that, you know, we've, we've had three groups of friends that have been in well-established careers that have made, you know, good money that are all educated, every single one of them. All three of them have worked, you know, five, six, seven, ten years and then up and left their jobs and traveled for, you know, a year or more. Yeah. And then, you know, some of them are now just starting to to sort of come back and, and reestablish themselves and kind of do that. And I think it's such an interesting phenomenon. I mean, hell, my wife and I are, are, are planning in that direction. I mean, our, our goal is to you know, she's always wanted to, to work abroad. And, uh, you know, so we are trying to sell our house and we are downsizing uh, to a smaller place. Yeah. The goal like, of you getting to write. Yeah, which yeah, is exactly. Nice. So, you know, our parents generation and generations before us have always sort of saved those things for retirement where I think our generation is, is seeing like, maybe I need to do those things sooner because my parents never got to them or they, lost the passion for, you know, what it was. Or they, they lost they the ability to enjoy that to sort of fullest extent, right? If you yeah. wait to enjoy the the sort of desires of youth, you're you're going to be too, you're, you're not going to be youthful enough to enjoy them. And, you know, it's kind of, whereas, and I get what you're saying, whereas in like former generations where it was, you would build up this sort of financial opportunity to, to take advantage of that. Now it's like, you're willing to sort of not have that same level of, financial security later on to enjoy some of those uh, opportunities for yourself earlier on when maybe you're more fit to enjoy them to the level that you want. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super interesting and, you know, obviously socioeconomics plays into, into things as well. I mean, you know, everybody, including myself had every advantage in that arena, you know, going into, into their careers and stuff. Um, you know, so everybody's not necessarily on on the playing field um, in the same way, but I well, sure. But I, but I think the mentality from a generational perspective is is very much there, and I think it's very much accepted by our generation. Like I've I've never goffed at uh, at any of you know my friends for you know making that phone call and saying, hey, we're you know we're leaving in three months to go you know go to Asia. And we don't know how long we're going to be there. And then we're going to go to South America. Then we're going to do this. Sure. But I had a conversation with my with my mom just last night about this very thing. And she was like, do you know what you're giving up? Do you, you know, what are you going to do? You, you don't have a 401k. And, yeah. you know, all of these kind of things. And I'm like, I, you know, some of, some of these things I can plan for. Yeah. You know, we, I, we have savings that we'll invest uh, in. You know, we'll try to do things like that. But really, it's a lifestyle change. We are not going to live our lifestyle you know, whenever we make this right. this decision or yeah. make this move, if it happens. A lot of it, too, is, you know, to the benefit, the people that have done that, you know, they've had the benefit of not having kids. Yes. Um, which is obviously, you know, that changes the equation entirely. Oh, yes. Uh, as far as, like, how your priorities are shifted. 
Um, and a lot of this, you know, has a very obvious socioeconomic sort of standpoint of yeah. you're afforded the opportunity to, to, to think about this lifestyle because of, you know, the decisions you've made and, and the steps that you've taken to kind of get yourself into a position. And not everyone has that same sort of socioeconomical like stance or, or, right. or not everyone is in that same status where they would have that opportunity to do that. You know, people that work paycheck to paycheck, people that have kids that they have to provide for people that are, you know, just laden with student debt or, you know, things yep. that, that kind of don't allow them to, to fully explore those sorts of options. Yeah. I mean, then it's kind of, you're in that, you're in that, I guess, prototypical mold that you see for most people, which is, all right, well, you know, I'll kind of just, I'll just save my money and I'll do this and I'll pay everything off. And then whenever I'm older is when I can travel and when I can do all these sorts of things. And yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. I, I am fortunate, um, I guess in that I've never been a big, like I've never been a person who's been extremely high on, on like, I love travel. I love going to like overseas and all these other places. I'm very much like, I like the idea of sort of adapting, um, my, my life and adapting the, the surrounding environment around me to, to the ways that will make me happy and, and, and learning to kind of like adapt in that. So I don't know exactly what my own version of that is. I think mine is more a, it's less kind of a getting away from your current sort of lifestyle and trying to figure out, you know, through the process of living in other ways, what attracts you and what makes you a happier, you know, more fulfilled person. I think for me, it's, it's more so trying to tie that in with, with what, you know, I'm doing professionally and to try to, to try to find some, some, some thread there that I can attach the two and, and find something and, and go down that path. For sure. Yeah. Which obviously exists, you know, with everyone as well too. Like yeah. if you can find a way to, to take something that you love and, and monetize it to, to have, you know, your life be provided for by that, then obviously that's great. I think everyone kind of wants that. <laughs> yeah. For wants sure. that goal. So, but, uh, you know, for more of a, from more of like a lifestyle and travel standpoint. Nah, that's never, I mean, that's never like when I retire, I'm not going to go and, you know, obviously what the hell do I know? This could change, but you know, as of right now, I'm not super keen on just going and seeing the world and doing all this other stuff. I'm fine with just sort of going and getting a little acreage homestead and focusing on really mundane things like gardens and you know, like gardens aren't bad. I, I love, gar- I love and, gardening, you know, reading simplicity, simplicity of waking up and, and partaking in the things that make me happy. So one thing I, I think we need to touch on before, you know, we, we really start to, to wrap things up for the episode is no. the, the secular nature of, of death in this book, I think is, is good commentary, I think, for where we are as a society. I think, by and large, like we are, we are making a, a big shift away from organized religion into sort of, you know, having a more secular society. I, you know, you say that, but I think that it's. I think that that shift is is slower than you um, would think, and I think that's mostly because of sort of. Uh, 
the nature of of religion or the lack thereof in people's lives and how they tend to sort of assemble into their own subcommunities and subgroups. So your sort of perception on things is not necessarily truly indicative of, of everyone else. But sure. I mean, obviously compared to 50, 60 years ago, I think that the, the notion of, you know, having a, a, a large segment of the population being, you know, mostly secular or non-religious was, it's much higher today, obviously. Yeah. And my assumption is that, um, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know kind of how, you know, over time, we don't have a lot of perspective on, you know, our current uh, iterations of religious ideology and how that sort of, what the life cycle of that is and what it looks like. You know, mm-hmm. we have a little bit. We have, obviously, you know, within Reformation and and uh, just sort of modernization, we, we kind of see the, the, the ebbs and flows of it. But we don't really, I don't know what there is to expect in the future because, you know, there are a lot of unforeseen things that could really shake sort of the foundation of people's uh, religious or ethical or just scientific belief. So notwithstanding, though, our protagonist in this book did not hold right. religious belief. Yeah, it's a Philip Roth book. So, And yeah. I, think, I think it's interesting when you think about death from that perspective, when, you know, you're just sort of heading toward nothing. Um, how much differently that could potentially motivate a person um, to, I guess, uh, say behave better, um, but maybe behave in a certain way. Like, right, the, the, the confines of religion are is, is basically, you know, behave yourself, and after you die, you get this, right? Sure, and, there's and, a reward to your adherence to the beliefs. Right. And, well, with the exception of Judaism, which, you know, is, is kind of a, l- a little bit different in that regard. But yeah. generally, certainly Christianity is 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 that way. And, you know, it's it's interesting if you think about that if you believe that you ended nothing, um, that, that you die and that's it, um, that a character like this who holds those beliefs wouldn't have you know, sort of cherished his life a little bit more, right? Like, I I'm, I don't believe that anything happens after you die. And that motivates me because I think that, you know, well, I need to make the most of my time here, you know, for, for every reason possible. But, you know, I also want to do as much good as possible because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing. I know that there's no reward for me for that, but there's a reward in that I can hopefully enjoy my time, you know, with people around me and hopefully make, uh, the lives of everybody that I'm around better, you know, by extension. And, you know, this, this guy is flawed as we all are, but, um, you know, sort of repeatedly. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, he's so doting, uh, with Nancy, but, you know, never has the relationship with, was it Lonnie and Randy, Randy. Randy, Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that he constantly, you know, cheats on his, on his wives and why does he, you know, keep getting married to, you know, if he knows these things about himself or should know these things about himself, did, did that strike you as strange that he didn't seem to have any sort of like motivation about death 
other than just the fear of it, just the, yeah. the overall fear of the yeah. loss of it. Yeah, I mean, kind of, um, but it isn't surprising because I think that, um, I don't know, I think the common response to the prospect of, you know, your life ceasing and there being nothing after that would be to kind of ignore it or not ignore sure. it, but to not really dwell on it or try not to dwell on it because regardless of how you view it through the vein of, well, you know, if there's nothing for me after this, then I better make this the best life. You know, as much as you can spin that in a way of positive or living your life to the fullest in its current current extent, it is, you know, it's not, it's, it's a, it's, it's not a very uplifting thought to think about, <laughs> no. to think about things ending and there being nothing else and that's it. So no, it doesn't surprise me that he's not like actively trying to, um, to, to lead his best life or actively trying to, you know, try to improve upon these mistakes because I think, you know, at the core of it, we all tend to lose sight of that and act in sometimes just unpredictable or, or predictable in the sense of, you know, when we make mistakes, you know, whether or not we learn from them, you know, that kind of the the things that lead to one mistake tend to tend to lead maybe not in the exact same way but they tend to lead to other mistakes as well and especially i think the commentary in here in this book with with relationships or with love um yeah i think there's a lot of carryover in between like human relationships whether it's friendships whether it's family relationships or whether it's romantic relationships where you just kind of not that you have these sort of immutable uh, downfalls or these sort of uh, traits of yours that just manifest in the same way in every relationship. But a lot of who you are, you know, it's you reach an age where it doesn't really change. And so yeah. you, you'll you find yourself making very common, similar mistakes. And I think it's just as an adult, you just have to be, you know, you have to be better about, putting yourselves in situations to mitigate those or, or, or whether it's a relationship of finding, finding people that, that fill in those gaps that allow you to sort of not get, not get too overwhelmed with things that maybe push you away or push you towards something that causes that. Yeah. You have any parting thoughts about this book or any any questions that we didn't we didn't already go over? No, I mean we the, can talk about this all day. This book, yeah, this book is not we're not gonna put this on our shelf or get rid of it or or praise it or laud it for its narrative. It's a simple narrative. It's probably one of the more simple narratives that we've read here. The writing is good. Um, the the dialogue, the character development, like I feel like we we get to know our we get to know our pro tag like very very well yeah um so from that standpoint like it's 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 an easy read um but it's not a book i feel like that's digested in a way a lot of you know your best sellers would be that have these sort of stories or, or things that are interesting that are yeah. kind of injected to them this was to me it feels like this was written and obviously you know in the later years of roth's life and it was just kind of more a just sort of a story about those fundamental things that are present in your life. But I assume just ramp up in intensity as you, as you start approaching, you know, older age and that's sort of dealing with your own mortality, dealing with the regret and sort of the, 
the choices that you've made or the the sort of decisions you've made in your life that that can lead to sort of a difficult older period in your life and and yeah. reflecting on that and i think that for for the sake of trying to get something out of this book uh on a personal level and reflecting on your own thing yeah it that's i mean it it, it accomplishes that for me yeah i th- i think it did for me too i i actually think that it you could almost consider it kind of a modern morality play in a way. Um, sure. And even though I don't think that Roth intended it yeah. in that way, there's, and certainly there's, there's no moral. Well, there there isn't. There there is. You know, certainly there's no one over. Like it's like, well, if he believed in God and acted, you know, in this accordance, his right. life would have gone bad. There's no specific thing like that. Right. But I, but I think there is something about the way that the story is told and the and the themes that it touches on that it does sort of ruminate with you in different ways that sort of leave you with that like huh kind of thing that you're supposed to you know yeah. get from a morality play. So, you know, I think it's quite clever in in that way, especially sure. knowing that, you know, it's it's based on on that play from from the 15th century. Um so I feel like we're halfway to a rating segment. Should we just dive in and yeah. and I've got nothing else, so I'll okay. go first. Go ahead. Um I'm going to put it on my middle shelf, I'm going to keep it first. I'll put it on my middle shelf um, because, you know, I think it's something that I could probably wholeheartedly recommend to, you know, pretty much every guy between the age of, let's say, 30 to, you know, 60 to probably read just to give them an opportunity to kind of think about their own things and not to exclude women, but just, yeah, you know, it's told yeah. from the standpoint of a guy. So there is more of a personal connection to that sort of... Uh, even just like the father son relationship and and just sort of his own sort of relationships with, with the various women in his life, there's something that's a little bit more um, personal, I guess in, in connection with, with guys, but certainly, you know, to, to anyone approaching that kind of middle to middle back end of their life. I think this would be a very good read. It's a short read, you know, the writing's really good. So yeah, it's a, it's middle shelf for me, not a universal recommend, but uh, I think there's a lot of people that would enjoy it. Uh, I'm, I'm keeping it as well. I, th- I think I agree. I'm going to put it on middle shelf. Although I, I flirt with the idea of putting it on top shelf because I think that we oftentimes talk around the subjects of, uh, aging and sort of the accumulation of regret and, and death. Um, but we don't often, you know, hit those things sort of head on in a longer form like this, right? Yeah. Often, you know, you, you get uh, books that are punctuated or motivated by death in, in some way, but this really is sort of a meditation on on those things. So it is something that, you know, I, f- I feel like I got a lot out of um, and, you know, I will probably actually read again at some point in the near future just to just to kind of ruminate on some of these these topics, you know, some more. And, you know, I, I would recommend it to, to anybody that, you know, would that has, you know, uh, elderly grandparents or, or parents that are getting up there in years because it gave me a bit of a different perspective, even though I was so close to my grandmother and, and all of that, it just, it, there was a, a level of insight that, you know, I just, I think we don't, again, often talk about head on that I think is really important. Um, I also think this book was a fantastic, uh, well, actually I want to ask you this. 
do you like <laughs> Roth more than than you did after <laughs> after Plot Against America? Yeah, after uh, reading this again, I and I kind of commented on this in episodes following that. A lot of my problems with with Plot Against America were were just my own kind of subverted expectations as what the book was going to be. I think the writing in it was fine. Um, and even if you broke it down, sort of the elements of storytelling within it were fine. Yeah. Um, but it was just, it was a completely different idea than I had in my head of what the book would be. I thought it was going to be on a bigger scale, kind of more overarching, and we got to see sort of the plot, whereas yeah. the book itself turned out to be just sort of a character study of this small family that's kind of happening throughout this sort of turbulent and uh, uncertain time. And so... You know, that was more so on my part. If I had a chance to go back and, and do it over, I would probably rate it differently. So, yeah, this, I, I mean, like I said, as far as approaching a book and trying to <laughs> understand what's going on narratively, this is probably the simplest book that we've had on the show so far. It's a very yeah. simple narrative. It's, you know, we're, we're faced with his death and we reflect on the instances in his life that, that cause regret or longing or that sort of lead into the idea of, you know, your own mortality something that everyone can relate to really easy to read, really easy to digest. Agreed. Um, I also think it's the perfect segue into what we're going to be reading next. Yeah. Uh, which is, we get, we we're getting back to back picks of yours after my back to backs. Now, yeah. have you thought about the one after? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, let's get I've into decided. this one. We've announced this one yeah. already because this one's going to be a little bit interesting because we're going to read and then also. Yes. So plus, uh, Plus, we are going to be doing an interview with the poet. So this is a poetry collection, um, More Than You Were by Christina Thatcher. Um, it is a collection of poetry just about her, uh, the loss of her father to uh, drug addiction and just the sort of family turmoil that that has surrounded that. And then uh, obviously the, the uh, grief that um, that goes along with that. Um, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a great episode. So it's going to be kind of weird because Christina and I will be, uh, somewhere in either Portland, Seattle, or Vancouver at, at that point. Right. Uh, Jacob will be back here in Texas and we'll be doing Skype. So our production quality will be uh, a bit diminished. So, yeah. So we're doing, we're doing the episode improper, uh, separate as well alongside the, no, we're going to do the, the okay. we're going to do the interview and the, the, the book discussion is just going to be like a big amalgamation of the three of us talking. Cool. So probably less, uh, less like dissection of the actual stuff and more just talking to Christina. Well, yeah, I mean, um, and I mean, you know, I've, I've started taking a look at it too. You know, it's a poetry collection, so there isn't yeah. as much of this, you know, you know, we don't have like as full, a lot of it is going to be kind of getting the background and, and the, everything that sort of goes into each of the poems and, and sort of the direction that they're going with that. Yes. So, um, leading up to that, a couple things I wanted to plug that episode is going to come out on April 8th. Um, Christina and I are going to be traveling for a writing conference and then, uh, we have a couple, a couple poetry readings. So she is reading with, uh, Leah Horlick, um, up in Vancouver on April 2nd from seven to nine at the people's co-op bookstore. Um, and then she and I are actually reading together with her partner, Rich Daly, uh, who also writes, uh, poetry and, and, uh, he, he writes, um, some, uh, fiction as well. Um, but we're going to be reading together at third place books in Ravenna, on uh, April 6th at 7 p.m., which is just outside of uh, of Seattle. So 
Um, if we have any listeners that are either in the Vancouver or Seattle area, you can, you know, I will be at, at both things. Christina will be reading uh, at, at both and I will be reading at the at the one on the sixth. Uh, if you forgot everything that I just said about that, you can go to betterthebookshelf.com or preferably find us on Twitter at betterbookshelf. Uh, I've retweeted some of Christina's stuff. I'll, I'll probably tweet some pictures uh, as we're up that direction and, and certainly, you know, from the reading and stuff. Yeah. So and while you guys are doing that, I will be eating or sleeping or <laughs> carrying on uh, the mundane normalcy of my life down here in Texas. Well, there's nothing wrong with being home. Yeah, it's there's a- nothing wrong with that at all. Um, I'm a homebody, so it makes sense. So then after that, we're going to we're going to stay kind of on this this uh, this strange uh, subject matter train and and we're going to do a short story collection. So I actually had a weird conversation with uh, or I I should say a fortuitous conversation with a coworker um, this this last week. And uh, he was in the Peace Corps and uh, one of the one of the individuals that that he knew from that. wrote a short story and some people are going to know this called cat per uh, cat person. Her name is uh, Kristen Ropinion. And uh, this thing went viral, I think in, in late 2017 yeah, and about a year and a half ago, we're, we're going to, we're going to read her collection that just came out in January of, of this year called, uh, you know, you want this cat person and other stories. Um, so we're going to read the collection. We're, probably going to pick a few specific stories from there to talk about, but we will talk about cat persons specifically and the sort of general conversation around that. Cause I think it's super interesting. Yeah. Also really notable um, is that she got a really big book deal to, to do this. And yeah. we'll, we'll, I want to talk a little bit about that and, and uh, how sort of bizarre that is and why uh, given just sort of the, the industry. So I think there's going to be a lot of kind of interesting uh, conversation these next two episodes that are going to be a bit of a departure from our normal sort of just yeah. book nerd And then afterwards, we'll round right back with uh, our normally scheduled sort of reading material. And uh, we're going to be doing Hop on Pop by Dr. Seuss. Excellent. So super excited about that. I haven't actually even thought, I haven't given a thought yet to the book that we're going to read after these uh, two collections. So Probably next episode, I'll, yeah. I'll have something out there for us. We'll, we'll sort it out. So again, uh, episode on the 8th, Christina Thatcher's More Than You Were. And then on the uh, 22nd of April, we'll do uh, Kristen Rapinian's You Know You Want This, Cat Person, and Other Stories. Again, find us on, on Twitter, at Better Bookshelf. And until next time.